Hello and welcome to Cloud Automation Weekly. My name is Thorsten Höger and I'm here to talk about automating your AWS cloud infrastructure. Today I'm joined by Alex Pulfer to talk about the application design framework. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you, Thorsten. Thanks for having me. For folks that are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, yeah, I'll try. <laughs> so I'm a solutions architect at AWS, and uh, specifically I work in a team called the Soft Factory. Uh, what we do, we essentially we work with AWS partners uh, to help them accelerate SaaS application uh, design. And we also look at use cases such as uh, new applications, migrations, or modernity. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um, so when you build or you help companies building SaaS, I think scalability and a correct application design is, is an important thing. So that might be why you came up with an application design framework. So what is it? It could be related. Yes. So uh, I think what I've uh, noticed, especially in the SaaS domain, right? So um, when we work with partners and it can be um, the consultancy, right? So system integrators, or it can be SVs that build for themselves. All of them need to build, that, for example, a task control plane. Uh, essentially, it's a set of services and capabilities that help to manage and operate the SaaS software. Right? And on one hand, we have some patterns uh, that uh, you people can use, right? Uh, audits and uh, onboarding and, and authentication and etc. Uh, but what I noticed, people still spend a lot of time on design and and um, I had interviews with uh, multiple people and I think it kind of clocked around two three months uh, to design uh, kind of a new uh, MVP right all things included and um, I did notice several recurring patterns which I think could reduce the time significantly and uh, that's how I essentially came up with uh, ADF it's kind of a summary of, of those learnings. Yeah, that sounds interesting. So does it tackle both ways? So when I'm looking at um, SaaS solutions, normally I see two ways to implement them. One is having one software that is multi-tenant capable. And the other thing is having one yeah, infrastructure per tenant that, that I'm hosting and duplicating everything. So does it tackle both or what is your preferred way of, of hosting a, a software as a service solution? So I think it's uh, both are totally applicable depending on the circumstances. And and uh, what I think I'd, I'd like maybe to first do is explain a little bit what ADF is, right? And then uh, see how it can help apply this to the domain, for example, right? So broadly, application design frameworks summarizes uh, several recommendations. It essentially stands what I call on the shoulder of giants. So I, I try to see how I can put together end-to-end -end product engineering process because this information I couldn't find online, to be honest. I tried, you know, to search for, for that and I did find a lot of information of, on each phase. Can be like the working backwards uh, phase where you try to identify the problem you try to solve and the solution for it, right? It could be about the engineering side, how you essentially implement microservices, but gluing all of that together that's an information that seems to be kind of um, within the organizations and it's not kind of really available. Second timers, people that you know did stuff, they can say, okay, they bring it with their experience. But people building solutions for the first time, especially in a domain uh, like quite complex such as SaaS, right? Um, I, I think that kind of information needs to help reduce the time spending. So that kind of sort of, of 
why we started the book in this. Yeah. yeah, I love that you start with the uh, working backwards part and not starting in your IDE, but because it starts earlier. Because your customers are never interested in your product. They are always interested in the solution or in, in the problem that they can solve using your solution and not in your solution itself. So I think it, it's important to start with why should I use this? Not how can I sign up for this? Exactly, exactly. And, and I think many times, especially we as the engineers or technology people, right, we, we always like to jump straight into technology and, and, and let's build architecture and let's build code, right? But if it, and, and sometimes I think we, because of that, we may miss um, the link to the actual user or the customer. What, what is it they're trying to achieve or to solve for? And there is also, I think, um, like different handoffs in the product engineering process, right? Um, there is this notion of value stream map where um, consultancies usually come in and, and say, okay, let's try to map out the handoffs you have, how much time um, you spend in each handoff and whether we can shorten that and improve that feedback. And, and uh, I think one of the things that would help with that is, is that if we all would work backwards, from customer wherever we are in the process phase. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, so the handoff that that's definitely um, the the Phoenix project and the Unicorn project, like reducing handoffs and and, and doing these things, or even the goal. Um, I had a, an episode on this topic with, with uh, Cassini last year, so that's definitely a thing. Reducing these parts, but as you said, starting from the customer, see what do we want to solve. It doesn't help to have a cool product or a cool chain if we don't have something the customer wants exactly exactly yeah and and maybe what i let's just try to walk through essentially a different recommendations maybe right yeah awesome so if we start with work backwards there are different approaches to that right and i think one of the popular ones i've seen is collecting use cases right so um i need an app for that uh, right or i need to solve this problem in a use case format um, at Amazon, we use a press release and frequent death question working backwards format, right? So we kind of write the press release of uh, what we want to launch, but as launch, and we also write frequent death questions, and it also helps to sharpen and understand the problem and the solution. And also, uh, there is a company called 37 Signals, makers of Basecamp and Hey email service. I, they also have um, came up with a shape up methodology, which I also really like. So they have kind of a pitch that they write to uh, for a six-week cycle that they want to, to build a specific project. So that all of these, are, to me, are kind of working backwards stages. And I think it's important to mention personas at each stage, right? Who uh, should interact with who? And th this is very critical in my mind. So this uh, stage where usually sales, marketing, product are involved. So they try to, to gather uh, this information and define this problem and the solution. Now, once we have this, many cases I see customers uh, and write stories. It can be user stories, feature stories, job stories, what have you, uh, different kinds of things, right? And that's a, a very easy intro uh, introduction to start having conversations about requirements. I guess maybe you've seen those around person or... Yeah, so, so the, the stories are really an important thing because they, they make it clear what you want to achieve. And I think working backwards means that you only implement what you decide or decided that, that you need instead of, oh yeah, that would be nice and that would be nice and that would be nice and having feature creep and you're never done. So if you start backwards, like 
this is what we want to do. And exactly this is what we want to do. It, it really helps a lot with scoping, even at this stage, right? Because you already can say, okay, um, this is the part of the use case we want to implement. Oh no, those stories are less important. Or you can maybe already recognize a kind of a red flag. Okay, the scope here is too big, right? So maybe let's let's cut. Now, once we have those kind of initial boundaries, I would say, that's where I think uh, product and engineering should get together and, and start working on the requirements to, to implement those stories. And those requirements uh, should guide eventually also the architectural decisions. And because sometimes you can maybe um, have a really important requirement, but if to build it, it will cost X, and that can, X will not be cost efficient for business, that may change the decision about actually doing that requirement. And I think like not accepting that as is, is very important to have like this discussion between product and engineering at this point. And I think what I found um, very useful to, to have this conversation easier is to essentially describe flows for each story. So let's say if I have um, a use case of a documents application, let's, let's take some, some concrete example, right? Um, I can write a story such as a document app owner, I want to register users. Or I can write a story as a member of the app, right? I want to see list of my documents and documents shared with me in the user email. Now, if I take this story and I uh, just start writing the requirements for it, okay, uh, there should be an in button, there should be this, there should be that. It's all great, but it doesn't depict the user experience. And sometimes the user experience can really drive our changes to requirements or, or the requirement itself, right? How do you look in? You go to example.com or documentsapp.com, or you go to some other URL. And that sometimes drives how technology implements, right? So drawing the flow, just a simple diagram sketch, right? So I'm a user, hello. Now I click on the document UI. It redirects me to sign in page. That's where I see the username and password field and et cetera. It helps, I think, a lot to kind of focus everyone how the technology should look behind, yeah. right? Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, in parallel, I'm thinking because we're just right now, we are implementing um, basically a SaaS solution in the community. So we are building an event system for community events in a German community to host community day registration and, and session management and things like that. And uh, just thinking about, because that's exactly one of these products and we're building it in the open as open source to showcase a real application, not having the 100th to-do app as, as a sample for how to build applications on AWS. And I really love that. I think we could use some of these ADF principles also to showcase why we did things the way we did them. Amazing, <laughs> definitely. By the way, uh, going back here to the question uh, you posed around the silo deployment model, dedicated resources or shared, uh, I actually had like this real um, inflection point when at this stage, right? Where, when we described flow. So I, I spent some time with a customer and, and they built a B2B application, right? And this B2B application, business to business application, uh, has tenants, customers that buy, want to buy and use it, right? So they wanted to decide, okay, um, how the experience should look like. Should, should I go to customer.example.com or should I go to example.com slash customer or just example.com? And when you don't depict those kind of flows, right? Like when you don't put it front and center, you start designing a solution that you say, okay, oh, I'll, I'll take a load balancer uh, or I create a load balancer per tenant. 
and um, then I create that you know um, authentication um, or identity store per tenant, and that's how I'm gonna do it. But then when you go to product, back to product, and you ask them, okay, uh, okay, that's how we built it, and the product say, wait, but I that will not work with user experience of example.com. And that's what we want, right? And then people already spend hours, you know, designing technology yeah. in, in, instead of first asking the user experience and then decide on the, you know, tile or pool or implementation model. And, and, and B2B SaaS, I think it's, it's uh, even more important to, to, to have this, right? If it makes sense. Yeah, that definitely is. So it, it's important because like these small changes, like, oh yeah, we want it to be on a subdomain. Oh, that means DNS. That means we cannot have two hosts listening to the same DNS. Oh, now we got a problem. Exactly, exactly. And it's all time. Like we know, say time is money, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think like after we do have some requirements, right? And and this is where the like, product engine should also be feedback loops. Here I would say like writing requirements, it may be 70, 80% product, uh, right? And then 20, 30% engineering kind of giving those feedbacks uh, to the product on, on the feasibility and such. But then the next step to me is uh, what I suggest in the app is to create the architecture um, for those requirements, right? And for those stories. Now, here again, I think it's important to have both product and engineering involved, but maybe kind of the opposite uh, percentage, right? So that's where product get uh, involved probably at 20, 30% of the time, right? Engineering, uh, engineering can be architecture, a team, it depends on who does what in the company, right? Um, but that's where we want to essentially build an architecture. And I think one of the first thing um, we should do is identify the components. Is this application, should should this application be monolithic for whatever reasons? Or should it have multiple components uh, like microservices or ETL pipelines or whatnot? Um, and I think here, once we have some initial pitch, what we should do is again, take and describe those flows but this time on architectural level, because previously when uh, we described all the, the flow, and maybe I forgot to mention it, it should still cater to the business stakeholders, right? Product, maybe sales, marketing, or whoever is involved in requirement definition. They, if, if I write there, I'll navigate to um, load balancer and it should be network load balancer, and uh, then uh, use the encryption key or envelope encryption, those people like will not get value from the description, right? So I think that's important to step. But then once we get to architecture, that's exactly where we should describe both the components, but also integration patterns, right? So um, should component A um, use gRPC to communicate with component B? Should it be an event? Uh, should it be a synchronous call? And I think that's exactly where we kind of validate whether the initial idea about flows, business flows, and the sketch we made about architecture, its components, whether it holds uh, water or not. Um, and once we have this, I think we then should validate the component boundaries. So we describe some component, we describe interaction model, integration patterns, and we think it makes sense, but should we maybe make those a single component or split it into more components? Has operational and sustainability considerations, right? And that's where I actually um, really like um, the approach from Tim Topology's book uh, that talked about structural plans. And essentially, it's a, a list of ways to identify boundaries. Did you hear about this, by the way? Mm, I'm not sure. Can, can you elaborate? Yeah. So um, in the Tim Topology's book, 
um, I think uh, who, um, David Pies and Matthew Skelton wrote that book, they suggest um, eight of what they call fracture planes or software boundary types based on which you can decide whether some functionality should live together in a single component, maybe high cohesion, or whether it should be decoupled because the cohesion is low. And those are, um, for now, <laughs> until they learn something new, business domain bounded context, regularly compliant, change cadence, team location, risk, performance regulation, technology, and user personas. And let's take, again, SaaS solutions, for example. In SaaS, in SaaS solutions, uh, you might want to deploy them in multiple geographical locations to be closer to your users. It can be for latency reasons. It can be for compliance reasons. So take data locality. And in that case, you might need to make some trade-off discussions or decisions. You can say, okay, so all of this functionality, it uses the same technology. It has the same risk. Uh, there is a single team that works on all of this. It has maybe the same bounded context. So, and, and it doesn't require regulatory compliance, like distribution. So I'll, I'll put it just in, in US, for example, right? Because it's possible. But then there is the data piece or data processing functionality that you say, oh, yes, it's the same team that maintains it, but because of regulatory compliance, I need to maybe split it out because I need to deploy it to multiple regions, right? So the pipeline is going to look different and, and the things I need to do around this are going to be different. So I think that could be an example from that world where um, th these fracture planes um, are, are useful too. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think that I need to read up on this because I think that exactly formalizes what, what I'm talking with, with customers about. Like, when do I put something in the same repo and when not? Um, and that's exactly the, the decision points, like for regulatory reasons, for it's the same team or not. Um, what do you want to deploy with each other and what do you want to deploy separately? That's exactly these things. So Exactly. And uh, what's nice about this, I think, um, is that this still happens in design time. And even before you got to the um, down to component level implementation, right? So I think that the right time essentially to have those discussions in terms of efficiency. Yeah. 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 And, and now I think uh, the next thing I usually recommend to do, and I think uh, that's a topic you really like, <laughs> right? So it's writing architectural decision records. <laughs> yeah, that, that's really cool. I, I really love seeing ADRs um, coming to a broader knowledge. Um, yeah, sometimes I, I with, with customers I say, yeah, this is an AD we should use ADRs for this. What's that? Then I explain it. Oh, that's cool. And then I see it creeping through the organization, like, oh, we've seen this in one team. We, we're using this now. And and at some point it goes full circle, and the team is, yeah, we decided to use ADRs. Do you know this? So yeah, and it reaches your team because I pitched it on another team. <laughs> so yeah, but. Uh, for our listeners, um, explain what ADRs are and how you use them in your step five of your um, ADF. Yeah, it's a, it's a important thing. We both love ADRs, but we <laughs> probably need to elaborate a bit. So um, ADRs stand for Architectural Decision Record. And the intent uh, of those records is to capture the why behind architectural decision, plus the options that were considered, trade-offs between them, and also the consequences for the solution, right? Because I think, and many times we, we can see that people maybe document um, the, the what or the how, right? Okay, this is the architecture, this is how it works. And uh, 
when we want to do a maintenance or evolution, change things, add things, people start debating. Okay, should we change this technology to this technology or uh, should we add this functionality here or not? And they, they, they always the discussion is, okay, if we would knew why that was built as it is, we know at least not to change it or maybe yes to change it. In many cases, this information is missing and it's hours that go wasted. Some, and sometimes people try to reconstruct all of those whys. They don't write them down and then it's lost again until the next time. So I think like yeah. this is really important, right? I think the most important part is about reading up on why things are the way they are. So, so like imagine every team member joining a team asking again, oh, did you consider using a SQL database instead of DynamoDB? Yes, we did. And then you explain it. And the next team member joins a month later or three months later. Oh, I've seen the architecture. Did you ever consider using a SQL database? Yes, we did this. <laughs> and if you have an ADR for this, it's like, here are the ADRs, why our architecture looks like it is. Please read them. And then it's, oh yeah, we chose the AnimoDB because of, and we considered um, using Cassandra, using Postgres, using as an alternative, and we decided for DynamoDB. And then, oh yeah, they did, and that's why they didn't. <laughs> It's hugely important. I think it saves a lot of time, right? And uh, like we, uh, there is a saying that goes like time is money, right? So yeah. time to market, essentially. Yeah. So I think those ADRs are important, but during essentially the architecture um, creation and, and capturing at ADRs uh, process, sometimes there could be uncertainty, right? So you say, hmm, uh, I think I would prefer DynamoDB, like you said, or Cassandra or any other solution, but there are some... Uh, black areas or some places that I can't easily understand, um, would it actually work? And I think that's uh, exactly the place to uh, put some maybe tasks on the backlog to do some experimentation if it's someone else or just pause and maybe building a little proof of concept or um, something that works, right? So you can validate your decision. It doesn't have to be, of course, the full-blown thing necessarily, but it also sometimes it helps not just analyzing theory, right? Uh, reading docs and quotas and everything, but also sometimes it's not enough. Go and build something, right? Yeah. And then I think one of a, a very important part of the ADR is what I think is my favorite leadership principle with AWS is disagree and commit. So if you come to the conclusion that this is how you want to write your ADR and this is the decision in it, you need to commit to it and then not discuss it again all the time. That, that is for sure. That, that's really helpful. And by the way, I, I maybe also want to give another example since, uh, you know, from the start domain, how that would like look like, right? And and why it's important also to prototype it. So um, I was designing a kind of a token vending machine API. So it's kind of a, an, a pattern that vends temporary credential. So you can scope active to data during runtime. And initially I said, okay, um, what I'm going to ask for uh, callers to this API is to supply um, the JOT, JSON Web Token, JSON Web Token, um, with the claims of the uh, customer the user belongs to, or tenants, as we love to say, right? And that's it. Uh, but then I realized that uh, for this pattern to work, once I wrote down the ADR, I might need more stuff. So I, I went ahead and did a little prototype uh, how to um, like send some request and, and like go the whole way, right? Kind of imagine writing an integration path, right? And um, turned out to me that I also need to validate this job. So I also need to ask for the um, timing keys uh, location so I can run this validation on my side before I approve the request. 
and maybe I need to ask for a specific session tag in AWS Identity and Access Management, right? So I can also help to scope this access for the service. So those things came up also during the ADR process when I was documenting the decision, plus the decision itself. But those little details, they pop up when you usually go and try to, to touch uh, your assumptions and, and try to, to run through them, right? Yeah, definitely. Awesome. So I think um, in, uh, so far, uh, just to recap quickly, uh, we talked about working backwards, write stories, create architecture, capture the decisions of, about the architecture and architectural decision records, and now I think uh, it's more geared uh, moving to the implementation phase. Now we start coding. <laughs> exactly. No, no. <laughs> sorry to disappoint okay. you. Almost all of you can feel it. <laughs> so um, ADF, right? It's application design framework, right? It's, yeah. it, it doesn't concern implementation. I definitely wouldn't want maybe to enter that space. <laughs> Too many opinions there. <laughs> um, I totally agree. But but at least I want to, wanted to provide guide some design plans for implementation, right? Which I think is important. And what I've seen quite often is that even if we have all of what I just mentioned, the link between even the architecture, right? Not to speak about working backwards or etc. It kind of gets lost when you just jump to the code because you can jump to the code and instead of application components and integration patterns, you see let's say folders like I don't know infrastructure and lambdas. And, and then, and that's it, right? And then you need to go into these folders and then you see like templates such as the PC, uh, virtual private cloud or Amazon ECS or whatever, right? And then I think based on my own experience plus people I talked to, the, in order to understand what's going on there, if you adopted this solution, right? Or you, a new person on the team and you need to make changes to it, right? You need, you know the architecture, but then you need to spend time learning how to map the architecture and all the requirements to the code. And here, I think from design perspective, there are two important things that I, I, I recommend that I've seen work quite well. And they also work like this at Amazon. Um, one is prefer create repository and pipeline per component identified in the architecture. And what it helps to do is to reduce the radius of changes and increase delivery performance. And the reasons for this are if you make a change in one GitHub repository, the most you can impact is whatever in that GitHub repository, right? It's harder to make a failure by editing code in multiple Git repositories. Plus, the delivery performance is better or better because you have a dedicated pipeline to each component, so they are independent. You do need, of course, for that approach to work well, investment in automation tools. So you need dashboarding, uh, pipeline security checks, or some way to monitor across all of those, you need a way to do contract testing such that you can deliver independently, but do not break each other, backwards compatibility and all those kinds of things, right? And, and I do see customers start elsewhere with a monolithic uh, or a single repository for all components or applications, and, and, and slowly they tumble into those problems, right? Let's reduce and, and deliver performance, and they try to gravitate towards this model. So I think from design perspective, that's definitely something I recommend moving to, but it has its trade-offs. And finally, um, within the component code, I usually recommend to group component infrastructure and runtime code, what people usually call application code, uh, by logical units, if there are, right? So I'll give an example. Uh, let's say I have this token vending machine API, right? It has a gateway which accepts requests. It has the IAM session broker that performs the assume role operation and bans temporary credential. 
And I also have some access metadata data, which stores all the registered clients that are allowed to be vended credentials, right? Plus, I also have some authorizer that does service-to-service -service authorization. Uh, like, am I allowed to call uh, and vent credentials, right? So what I would do, I would just create folders. Uh, it depends, again, for each of those. Or maybe create a folder for the runtime piece of the authorizer and I am session broker. So when I go to the repository, I can see, okay, uh, this is where the IAM session broker code is, and it has a runtime, like a, the Lambda function that executes the runtime. And here I have a folder for authorizer, and that's inside that another runtime piece for the another Lambda function that does authorization. But now I look at the architecture, I see the component architecture inside, I go to the code base, and I have the same abstraction. I don't lose. So I think that would be another important design decision for code. Yeah, yeah that sounds really interesting. And I really love that. Uh, creating repository and pipeline is, is what snap uh, with it because it's I often hear like yeah yeah we do the repository we start deploying we, we can build a pipeline later and I was like why G given the deployment frequency during your initial development phase you deploy every some minutes later you deploy every day or every week so the most of your deployments happen during initial development this is when you want automation not later when you never change anything again. You want the automation in the beginning when you really change things all the time. So you should start with the pipeline to make it easy to have all these changes that you're doing in, in yeah in every minute go through the pipeline. Not, yeah, now that I've deployed 100 times manually, let's build a pipeline for, for the next five times. <laughs> That's so true, so true. It's like people always postpone this, but I think... Uh... It's like the foundation. Yes, I, I totally understand that sometimes you have like the pressure to deliver features, etc. And and maybe I don't know um, detailed observability and dashboarding and, and and those kind of things might potentially be postponed, right? But the automation is what makes you fly, right? The, like the delivery automation. So it's kind of the, a foundational thing uh, in my mind as well. I totally agree with you. Yeah, and especially since it's easy, it's not like that you need to start with an empty file in every repository in re. Reimagine how a pipeline could look like. You you can generate it. You can copy it from somewhere. It's it's already done. Um. So the last episode was uh, with Julian talking about Progen. So with Progen, you could build your own project type for all your services, and then it, when you start a new service, it already has its pipeline built for you. So it's not that it takes ages to have a pipeline. It's just do it. For sure, yeah. It's like someone like CEO, uh, Center of Excellence or something like that, like our enablement team. Uh, can build this once, then everyone else can. Yeah, so it definitely should start with, with the pipeline. And that's coming back to, to my main topic about cloud automation. If you don't automate it, it doesn't make any sense. Then or we don't gain anything with, with cloud or with, with modern technologies. If you don't automate it, it's just another data center. That's so true. I've heard this multiple times and I could, couldn't agree more. Yeah, like APIs are the kingdom cloud, right? So and yeah. you need to automate them. And it's always what's the uh, what's the benefit of the cloud and all these uh, buzzwords come out and it's like, no the single most important benefit of the cloud is the API <laughs> for sure that's that's and what makes cloud um, better th than data centers is that it has an API for everything that you can automate it that's exactly what the benefit is automating things because then it makes it reproducible more efficient um, and all these things Th that's why automation is, is king here. And that's why you should start with a pipeline and you should start 
never do anything manual in, in the cloud because then it's yeah it's just an expensive data center <laughs> i would by the way also add that uh, automation can take many forms but i would say that uh, maybe infrastructure f code or infrastructure from code is kind of a type of automation that would also strongly recommend <laughs> not maybe the service shell script right that uh, automates yeah there are different ways to automate things but i think even a bad automation is better than click ops um but yeah there are definitely ways to do a better automation for sure um, yeah, but that sounds uh, really interesting. Um, I think now component infrastructure and runtime code, grouping them in your repository is the last part of the design. And then we go into the implementation phase, which, as you said, is not part of the design framework, but then is part of yeah developing code. I think that's where most people start. So everything we, we just mentioned is that should come before. <laughs> um, so... Yes, and obviously uh, the things that will emerge from this should adhere to the well-architected framework. So that's how you design the architecture, I guess, right? Like yeah. uh, the, the, these are the principles uh, underpinning uh, the architecture. So what would is there another step, or is this the recipe for a great application design? You mean the well-architected framework? No, um, the, the steps we we now discussed. So I think we we wrapped it up. Yes, I think if we look at all of that together, that what makes I think organizations run could make or help organizations right run even faster, right? Uh, because you have short feedback loops. I think that the kind of main thing here is how we make feedback loops shorter. How do we make end of shorter, right? And and those through that we can gain business velocity, right? And and I think at large this is what it's all about. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I think this has been really great. Um, where can people find find out more about you online? Oh, thank you. So uh, I guess people um, mostly can find me on my uh, LinkedIn uh, profile and Twitter. So I kind of publish uh, various news and articles that I find useful. Um, so I'd say this uh, about the EDF itself, the application design framework. Um, currently, it's hosted in my GitHub profile. So it's github.com slash alexpulver slash ADF. And uh, just recently, uh, me and my colleague, uh, we added an example of ADF because, you know, we, we build kind of a framework, but people ask for, okay, can you show me how that actually looks like in real life? And, and this is the whole purpose of ADF, to understand how things look in real life, right? Um, and not part of institutional knowledge somewhere. And so we just recently added an, an example that hopefully can be very useful um, for people. Yeah, yeah, and, and by the way, maybe a less thing, um, uh, since you know I come from the SaaS factory team and uh, we do see customers building SaaS applications. So on top of ADF or applying ADF uh, to SaaS domain, um, there is a very useful resource I'd recommend people interested in SaaS to check out, which is the LSAS factory insight hub where essentially uh, we aggregate a collection of resources that can help people at any stage, right? Product uh, definition or implementation, so they can find much more details about the stuff it's of applying. Yeah, perfect. I will put all the links in the show notes. Um, yeah, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Torsten. Yeah. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm Torsten Huger, and I hope you join me again next time for Cloud Automation Weekly.